Thanks, Meg. Awesome. Good to see you. Man, it's good to see faces in this room. And so, um, way back in the day, by the way, if uh, we dismiss Kid Zone, if, if you're a middle schooler and go, wait, I thought I was supposed to leave. When you hear that, you're allowed to leave as well. So if you're outdoors, head to my right, your left. If you're a middle schooler, you can head out these doors right there. Miss Nadine will greet you there. But I'm about, let's see, Julie and I have been married now 15 years. Two years into our marriage, we were living down in Georgia, and we flew up to uh, New York to do the Times Square thing, right? So we went on New Year's Eve, stayed out, you know, way too late with a bunch of people and a lot of germs. What in the world, right? It's a whole different world there. And so I uh, did that. And one of the things that we did while we went, we also went to the David Letterman show, right? And um, so we got there and we were told if you're really friendly to the people outside, they'll put you on the front row. And so we were really friendly and they put us on the front row and so Dave is about to come out, um, but before he comes out, someone comes out and kind of goes, okay, here's why you're here, the free tickets, but there's a reason that you're here, and it's not just to enjoy the show, it's because it's better when it's filmed in front of a live studio audience, and so then they kind of prep the whole audience, right, with, hey, you're supposed to be really generous with your laughter, everything's funny, right, then they even said, you'll know because there'll be signs that say applause or laughter, and they practiced for a little while before Dave came out, and taught us how to do all those things and so for you guys in here this is a live studio audience right to be extra generous with your laughter and uh, participation and I promise if you're extra generous I might let you out a little earlier than I would if not that's a lie guys that's a lie so it is good to see you I'm also really happy to have you online really really glad to do this guys out in the parking lot just saw you y'all look really good out there happy to spend some time there and this is the first time in a long time that we can kind of address a, a good portion of our church in real time and so here we are in real time and so excited about that and just in case just in case you uh tune out have to head out your internet goes bad your you know your battery dies whatever it is let me go ahead and tell you what the main idea is right you ready big idea for today this will help shape everything you know it's gonna take us a little while to explain it but here's uh, when I say us a little while to explain it, I'm actually, it's just me. I don't know why I talk to myself like that in plural. I guess Holy Spirit. Yeah, there you go. That, that's why. Um, and so here's kind of the big idea. We have to, right now in the middle of this chaotic world, we have to take Jesus a lot more seriously than we currently are. Got it? Like we have to. Like if you want to live in this realm and be fully alive and all the mess we got going on, there is only one solution for that. We're going to have to take Jesus. By Jesus, I mean the God of the universe who steps down on this planet to so the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus. We have to take it really serious, guys. And if we can and will, then I think it has massive ramifications, not for whether or not you get to heaven one day, but it has massive ramifications just for today. You got it? Like something could really change for you today as we start actually believing, not that Jesus was a guy who died so that we can go to heaven, but that there's something that he does that makes today so much better. And we're going to see where I'm going to introduce you to a couple of people today. And uh, well, Luke is, but I'll, I'll catch up to speed. And one of them is going to be this guy named Simeon. Okay. And Simeon, his life is going to get better. Not later, not some day, day in the future. His life is better when he interacts with Jesus. Like it changes it for today, right? And then we're going to meet a lady named Anna. It might be Anna, but since it's princess and queen Anna, I'm going to say Anna for my daughters. And so... Um, she is in her old age. She's at least 84, but she's probably 104 years old. And everything about her life gets better in the day that she meets Jesus, sees Jesus. And so just want you guys to know that there is real ramifications for sitting here and learning about Jesus and becoming more like him. So if you don't believe in this stuff, what a, what a really great day for you to be here. If you do believe in this stuff, today's the day to double down on this, guys. It really, really is. So you'll see that through a really neat passage. And why I'm saying it's a really good time if you're really kind of on the fence about whether or not Jesus is real or God is loving or even exists. The reason it's a good day is because we've been charting through uh, one of the books of the Bible. And by books of the Bible, it just means there's these 66 different um, books or chapters or understandings of someone writing about God books are written by different authors, but they all are just telling one story about who God is and how much he loves us and what kind of plan he's done for us. So this isn't, the Bible isn't some how-to book or science book or a history book. It's, it's a really long letter that God writes to his people and writes it using human brains and human hands 
And so pretty, pretty neat thing to see. But uh, the book that we've been kind of studying is the Gospel of Luke, right? And uh, the Gospel of Luke, just, the word gospel just means good news. And so this guy named Luke writes it. And uh, so basically what he's done is he's written a really long biography of Jesus' life. In fact, he writes 1,151 verses of a biography. And of those 1,151 verses, 568 are direct citations or quotations from Jesus' mouth. And so Luke writes this. And the reason he writes it is because there's a guy named Theophilus. Real people, real human history, right? This guy named Theophilus who... Um, hires Luke, who was a doctor, and he hires him out of the medical profession to spend years, if not a decade or more, going and studying about Jesus. So this guy named Theophilus, he's probably a Roman official, lots of power, lots of um, influence, lots of money, all those things. And he, he hires Luke because he is curious about Jesus. He's going, okay, should I believe in this person? Should I, in other words, start taking Jesus really seriously? Like, is it the time? And there's some real ramifications for Theophilus as he considers this because he's grown up um, having lots of influence, and lots of, you know, fame, power, might, all those things. But the way by which he leveraged it was by saying this, Caesar is Lord. By declaring a man God, it allowed him to, to lead lots and lots of people, right? And have lots, lots of influence. Now, if Jesus is Lord, that means Caesar is not Lord. Now, Theophilus would have already come to the conclusion that Theophilus is not, I mean, Caesar is not Lord because Caesar was a bad man. But he understood that it's a lot easier just to say that out loud, go with the current, than it would be to change everything and go, no, there is a God, there is a Lord, his name is Jesus. And so Theophilus does the hard work of hiring a guy to go and learn everything about it. So we learn about Luke, and Luke is a guy that basically becomes a private investigator, right? And he tells us that he went and grabbed all the written documents he could. That would have been all the Old Testament. That would have been the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. And he would have gathered all those things. And he would have uh, gone and sat down with all the eyewitnesses, meaning he would have sat with Mary and Joseph, Jesus' parents. He would have sat with the shepherds. He would have sat with the people in the first century who give their entire life, their livelihood, and they surrender it all to Jesus, right? He would have sat with them. And it said that he went and listened to all the oral traditions, so he had sat in lots of church services in the synagogues, and he would have taken notes. And it says that he compiled all those things and put them in an orderly or chronological account to help us understand whether or not that we could have certainty. He says, I, he writes these things so that we can have certainty of the things we've been taught. And so Luke is going, you can have certainty of this, Theophilus, you can have certainty of it. You can take Jesus really, really seriously. So... If you're wondering whether or not Jesus, you can have certainty in knowing God, being close to God, connecting to God, all those things. Well, Luke wrote a book just for you. And that's what we've been investigating. We're in Luke chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 21 through 40 today. And I'm going to read them all. I'm going to read them all. And we're going to work through all those things. So that's where we're going to be today. And this is the ninth part of this series. As you can tell, it's going to take us a while to get all the way through uh, the Gospel of Luke. Years, probably. And so here we are, Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. And so let me just help you understand what Luke would have kind of worked through. And we've talked about this a lot over the last several weeks. Is There's kind of two different parts of this. Uh, the first one is promise. The second one's fulfillment. Okay? So when Luke would have sat down and re went through all the uh, written documents, he would have really, really studied and researched the Old Testament. So if you don't know much about the Bible, it's kind of broken, up, broken down into two parts. Old Testament, New Testament. Old Testament tells us how we got here and tells us what the problem is, right? If you read the, the Old Testament, there's 39 books written over, you know, uh, 12, 13, 1400 years. Really long time. Tells us about the human condition. Tells us how we got here from a God who spoke the world into existence. Shows us what, what's wrong with us and evil and brokenness. And literally from, you know, the first family, Adam and Eve, you see the first murders with their son. You see all sorts of brokenness where humankind goes, God, we don't know if you exist. We don't care if you exist. Or we do know you exist. And we just don't like you. Don't want to follow your plan. And so what you see in the very beginning is humans just kind of chose their own plan over God's. And and what we've seen for thousands and thousands of years is just the mess and muck and mire that that's created, right? You don't have to be a Christian to just agree that the world's broken, right? None of us do. Like, yeah, you, we all would go, yeah, the world's really broken. And I really, the conversation goes, well, how does it get fixed? Many of you have just resigned to the fact that it's not going to get fixed. So that you just got to focus on your own little world because the big world is broken, right? Or some of you have hitched your, or tethered yourself to ideologies that go, politics will fix it government 
will fix it. My family will fix it. My good ideas will fix it. Whatever those things are. And so what, what the Old Testament tells us is there is a real problem. Our world is broken and all the people that you and I are broken as well. But the neat thing about the Old Testament is there's this, this kind of this whisper through all 39 books of a promise that's to come. A promise, right? So the Old Testament basically says there is a way, even though it seems like there's no way, I will make a way, and there's a promise that God will one day make all things right, right? One of the things he says, and this is pretty easy to understand, is he says there'll be a day where there's no more tears, no more pain, and no more sorrow. And that's pretty interesting to think about because why do we cry, right? Why do we, when we go to a funeral, do we feel so much sadness? Like, why is, why do we feel those th- things, right? And we understand what pain does for our body. Like, when we have pain, there's a reason for that pain. And that pain, that, that pain is to help us understand that something's wrong, right? There's something wrong. Like, if you uh, have an ailment in your body, there's pain. But the pain is actually helpful because it says there's something wrong, right? And so, so much about pain and sorrow just reminds us that something's wrong. So when we see tears and sadness and pain, really what it is is our minds and our souls telling us that we recognize something's wrong, right? And so Old Testament, people recognize something was wrong, and God would go, one day I will make a way, and I will do all the work, right? That's what's so interesting about Christianity is God does all the work, and we get all the benefits, right? And so is a promise. Now, the whole Old Testament whispers about this promise, gives us signs to look forward to, but the promise is not fulfilled in the Old Testament. In fact, the promise is filled when the, fulfilled in the New Testament when God says he'll make a way where there's no way. And so the New Testament begins the fulfillment of all the promises, right? So there's all these signs people are looking for in the Old Testament. And finally, in the first century, stuff like, hey, there's going to be God. He's going to be born as a baby. And he's going to be born of a virgin. And it's going to be in this little bitty town of Bethlehem him, right? And he's going to be from the line of David, and all these different kind of promises that were playing out, all of a sudden Luke is capturing all those and showing us fulfillment. Now, before we read Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 21, I have decided that today I'm going to give you lots of points, okay? And uh, because I'm from the South, I was originally a Southern Baptist minister, right? And um, I, I went to a Southern Baptist seminary, and there's something about Southern Baptists. They like their alliteration, right? And so I'm kind of going to, you know, remind myself of my days as a Southern Baptist pr- pastor using alliteration. So I'm only going to give you points today that start with the letter P. There you go. Why not? So because of that, obviously we can't talk about fulfillment anymore because that's not a P. So we're going to refer to it as this today. Payoff. Right? And so there's a promise that God made. And then you're going to see this payoff kind of play out. And I'm going to go and tell you that payoff is going to be Jesus. Right? But it doesn't mean you get to heaven later. It means there's something for you today as well. And so there is a promise and there's a payoff. But the reality is we haven't experienced that payoff yet. Right? We haven't experienced that fully. And so between the promise and the payoff, there's always a process, and that's what we're going to look at today, this process that uh, throughout human history that people try to participate, there's another P word for it, in, in this good news, try to figure out what it means for our life. And so right now we're in the middle of this one day, there'll be no, no more tears, pain, or sorrow. We get that, but that's not today. Today we're in the middle of the process. So what, would the, what does that process look like? And the best thing to do is look at how people 2,000 years participated in this promise hoping for the payoff. And so where this happens, we're going to see, is going to be particularly with uh, Mary and Joseph. We're still with them. Haven't been with us. Mary's the virgin. She's probably 13. She hasn't even got married yet to Joseph. And he's probably in a, a teenager as well. And they birthed this baby in Bethlehem. And so they're not from Bethlehem. They're from Nazareth. But they travel 100 miles or more to go because the, they had to go to the census. God's orchestrating all this stuff. And they find themselves in the city of David because that Joseph's great, 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 great granddaddy was from the, is David. And so they went here and they've been going through this crazy process. And here they find themselves in Bethlehem. They birth a baby. And, uh, and most, Mary does most of that work. And, um, and now they find themselves in this, somebody's home, living in a manger, right? Because they're a long way off. And now we're, uh, find, we found ourselves, we're going to find ourselves about eight days into the story. And they're still homeless, living in Bethlehem. They're, they're here for more than a month, living in this manger scene, right? It's really, really complicated. And so it's going to take place with Mary and Joseph. So let me read it to you. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. Lots and lots of fun. Let's see what happens here. And at the end of eight days... 
when he, that's Jesus, was circumcised, he, uh, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So baby's born. This is what we finished up with last week. And eight days later, they would have uh, done the circumcision uh, ceremony. And that's really important here because the circumcision was all about the promise. It goes all the way back to Genesis 11 and 12. The world's really, really broken. And God basically says, let me just make a covenant with you. Let me, that's more than a promise. That's a uh, promise without stipulations. You're going to keep messing this up. You're going to keep wondering if there's a way. And I just want you to hear me. There will always be a way. God's going, I will make a way where there is no way. And so he makes this deal with the human race. He tells Abram, who becomes Abraham, I'm going to bless you and you're going to be the father of many nations. And it's not because you're going to get it right. You're going to do a lot wrong, but even though you do a lot wrong, I'm still going to do everything right. And so there, there was this promise that these people were going, okay, God hasn't forgotten us. And the way that they were reminded of the promise was when their sons were born, on the eighth day, they would uh, do two things. One, there would be circumcision, right? This was, this was a sign you can't take back, right? This was a reminder for men as they grew older, as they had families, that like God is faithful. So they would do circumcision, right? So they would do that. And then on the eighth day, they also would name their child. And typically, that child would be named something about the promise, right? And so uh, Jesus is circumcised because they're a good Jewish family. They're following what they're supposed to. And so they, Jesus gets circumcised, and then they give him the name that the angel tells him to get named, and it's Jesus, but it's actually the Hebrew word would have been Yeshua or Joshua, and it literally means Savior. So Mary and Joseph are declaring this son actually is going to be the Savior. We have to take him more serious, right? So they find themselves eight days in, they have, uh, there's this circumcision that happens. They declare his name, Jesus. And here we find ourselves in verse 22, and it says this. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So they're going to now make another excursion. They're staying in Bethlehem, but now that they're going to go to Jerusalem, and where they're going to go is the temple, okay? So they go to the temple. And there is a reason they go to the temple. It actually tells us that. And there it says, and when the time came for their purification. Ah, oh, another word, right? So here we go. Purification. So what this means, and oh man, I, wish, I really do wish, and we'll cover it Tuesday in the overtime, the additional part, is what we're seeing here. Luke is reminding us of uh, stuff that happened thousands of years before. So God made a promise. One day there'll be a payoff. They're in the middle of the process, and they're saying, okay, okay, what do we do in the middle of this process? How do we honor God? And many of their questions, some of ours as well, is if God is so perfect and holy and he seems so distant, how do we get connected to him? If he's perfect and we're not, the first solution in many people's minds is, oh, I guess we should become perfect, right? So there's this, this question that goes, well, how do you get back to God or become your own God? And so much of that is about how do you become the best version of yourself? right? How do I stop doing the things I shouldn't do, start doing the things that I should do? And so there's this process that you see throughout the Old Testament in terms of what do you do in the process before God brings back Jesus, or brings back the Messiah, what do you do? And what happened in this world is there was this desire for purification. Right? So one of the interesting things for women after they were to, after they had gave birth, they were seen as dirty, right? Blood in the Old Testament is seen as completely dirty, broken, flawed, right? And so um, when women had their menstruation cycle, that they would have to be separated for the seven days while blood was a part of their, their life, right? And then uh, when they had children, obviously that is a, a pretty messy deal, and they would have been defined as unclean. Now, so they're going, okay, well, if we're unclean, how do we get clean? And here's the three things that they understood for becoming clean, making God happy with them, and their, you know, their false religion beliefs, but this is what they thought, right? One is they followed policies, right? And so if you go back and read the Old Testament, you got Genesis, Exodus, those are kind of the story of God's people, and then you got Leviticus, Leviticus comes from the word Levi, which comes from the priestly tribe of the Israelites. And Leviticus is all about all the policies, right? Like there's things in it. It's crazy stuff like, hey, you can never boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. One of the rules, right? And so there's all these rules and all these policies in the, the Old Testament that people would have to follow. That's what a law is. It's just all these rules. Now, just before we get too far down the road, let me remind you, that the reason for the rules wasn't because God thought you could actually follow them all. The reason for the Ten Commandments isn't you need to keep them in the courthouse and you need to follow them so that everything will be good. God, this is so crazy. The reason for the Ten Commandments and all the laws 
600 plus laws. All the laws. There's one reason. The way that I, I like to describe it, I think this will be helpful for you if you haven't heard this before. It's like an MRI machine, right? So an MRI machine doesn't fix you. It doesn't save you. It doesn't heal you. You got it? But when you go into an MRI machine, you lay down and it does whatever it does, makes a loud noise, you stay there too long, you get claustrophobic, you hopefully at least get to listen to good music and not like, you know, uh, we'll stay out of that, sorry. Um, so you, you're laying there, right? And eventually, maybe in the hours or days, they kind of show you what's going on in your body, right? That's what the MRI machine does. It doesn't fix you, but it does show you what's wrong so that therefore you would go and find the right doctor, right physician, right person to, to then get on the right protocol so that you can find healing. MRI machine doesn't heal you but it does reveal what needs to be healed, right? So you can view all the laws in the Old Testament, all the policies, not as the things that are going to fix you. But when you try to apply them, what you realize real quick is you and I are not capable of following those rules, right? You are not capable of even keeping your own New Year's resolutions and keep doing the things that you commit to, much less all the perfect things that God would have you co- commit to, right? And so because they're going, how do we purify ourselves? God goes, oh, you you want to, they go, God, could you just tell us? If you just tell us what you, to do, we'll, we'll do all these things. And so God goes, oh, you think you will? Let me just give you all the rules. If it's all about your performance, then here's all the rules. And so what, one of the rules was if you're dirty, you have to be purified. And so there are some policies that were in place. So the laws are the policies. But it's not just policies. It's, there's also procedures, right? So not only do you have all these policies that you have to follow, you actually have to do them. Right? And so one of the procedures of getting clean, if you're a woman who had a child, was that you would have to stay separate from all other humans for a period of time. This is so messed up, so misogynistic. But if you were, if Mary were to have had a girl, right, 80 days later, she would be able to come to the temple and get purified. Right? So she'd bring all this. They'd have this high priest. He'd, he'd you know, splash some water on them, burn some incense, and declare that she's been purified right 80 days for baby girls i don't know why 40 days for baby boys so where we find ourselves and when the time came for their purification according to the law of moses they're going all the way back to the guess 40 days after jesus was born they're still in bethlehem they're not at home yet they get to go to this temple get to the temple and they get to submit jesus to god and two things are happening here the first one is purification right so they're bringing this child that to god and so brought him up to jerusalem to present him to the lord this is about policies and purification for procedures and that you find that in leviticus chapter 12 and it tells her what you got to do not only do you have to bring the child this is what it says um they shall offer it before the lord and make atonement for her then she, this is for Mary, she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, it sounds like if you can't afford a turny, one will be provided for you. Uh, then she shall take two turtle doves, three French hens, and a partridge in a pear tree, and t- or two pigeons. It actually just says two turtle doves or two pigeons. One for burnt offerings and the other for a sin offering. So they would offer these things, and the priest shall make atonement for her. And guess what? she'll be clean so the way by which they found cleanliness and reconnection to god was they believed they had all these rules to follow and they actually followed them in the procedures but it wasn't just the policy of procedures there's actually another part of this and pilgrimages and this is how you can define just about all religion right religion has a set of rules you're supposed to follow god will be happy with you and as long as you operate correctly do all the things god is happy with you but you can't just do it in your own home you actually have to go to the place where god dwells Right? So you go to Mecca. You go to the temple, whatever it is. And so Mary and Joseph, they have the policies and procedures. They're good Jews. They go to the temple. They make a pilgrimage. And they go before this guy who has all the power to define them as clean. And so just two verses in, Luke is reminding people about all the stuff going on. And for Jewish law, all the policies, all the procedures, all the pilgrimages. And there's one other thing. Now, if you go back to Exodus chapter 12, 13, there's this hundreds and thousands of years early, right? There, this moment where all of the Jews found themselves enslaved, right? They had no freedom. And it was because they made some decisions. They hedged on some things they shouldn't, and they found themselves as slaves to the Egyptian government and the Egyptian people, and they kept asking God to save them. God, would you please make a way or there's no way? God uh, does some crazy things, these 10 plagues that you might be familiar with. 
in the uh, Old Testament and sends Moses to tell Pharaoh to let the people go, but the last one's the Passover, right? And in that, God basically says, hey, uh, the firstborn children belong to me. I want you to see that everything is a gift. And so firstborn male children. And so the other thing that's happening when you had a, as a Jew, thousands of years later even, as a Jew, when you have a baby son, you also got to go to the temple and present that son as an offering. Same way Isaac, uh, Abraham was told to bring Isaac, put him on the altar. God does all the work, but this was a reminder. So these Jews and their policies, procedures, and pilgrimages would have brought a son, uh, their son to the temple. And what would happen? They go, God, we give him to you. Uh, so here you go. But then they'd make a sacrifice. They'd slaughter a lamb, throw in some five shekels or whatever it is. It's like $2.50. The Jews would give back to the temple, and then they'd get their son back as this, you know, kind of this redemptive act. So, we've got two different things going on here. Mary's trying to get clean and purified, and they're trying to set Jesus apart for what God has planned for them. Lots of policies, lots of procedures, definitely some pilgrimages, and that's where we find ourselves. Verse 23, it says this. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, right? That's the consecration. And to offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. Again, it tells you to offer a lamb, but because Mary and Joseph are really poor, a pair of turtle doves are too young pigeons. So a lot going on here already, and, but what we see here is uh, they're trying to honor God, figure out how to connect to God, and they believe the way you do it. These are good, godly people. It is by following the rules, right? The policies. Participate in all the procedures, and doing the pilgrimages, right? This is one of the interesting things you got 2,000 years later. Many of us still come to church. Many of you are logged in online now or out in the parking lot right here in the sanctuary because there's this belief that if I want to be close to God and he feels far away, if I want to be close to God, the only way to do that is to go on a pilgrimage, right? Go to the church building, go to the sanctuary, or go find the, the priestly or godly person, right? Those kind of beliefs, and this goes back from the beginning of time, and so policies, procedures, and pilgrimages. So, where most of that happens is in the temple, right? So, um, you still see this today, like if you were to go uh, read about the Herodian temple, there's still the wailing wall there. There's the place where the Holy of Holies, or we can get kind of access to it. And while there's a big mess happened in 70 AD where it kind of crumbles to this day, it's kind of seen as a place for Jews, Muslims, and Christians that kind of can migrate here. And the reason being is they believe, they believe, wrongly by the way, but they believe that that is how they experience God's presence. So, so much about the temple is they believed, and for a time would be accurate, that that's where God lived. In fact, Jesus actually refers to the temple in some places when he gets his parents losing. They go, where were you? He's like, I'm at my dad's house. That's what he actually says, and we'll get to that in a, in a week or so. And so we see Herod's temple. There is this place where they would you know, pursue in the pilgrimage God's presence. There's five reasons, I think, that uh, people kind of went to the temple. Let me just chart them out for you real quick. Um, because it, for the Jews, it was a place between heaven and earth. Right? They understood the world's broken. They understood that God was perfect. And there needed to be some kind of, you know, access point. The Jews, many people in different worldviews, go to the temple because they believe that is kind of where heaven and earth collide, right? Uh, second one, really, really important, this is one, is that they believe that's where God dwelled. So that's how you got God's presence. If you felt like God was far from you, you'd have to go to the temple and hopefully feel close to him again. Um, the third one would be it's uh, where people can not only feel God's presence, but they could actually meet with him. So not only could God be present to them, this is where they could have a conversation with God, right? They could pray to God. They could offer sacrifices to God. Um, that, that leads to the fourth one. It's the place where sin was covered and atoned for, right? And so... And in that worldview, our worldview, many, we understand that there's flaws and brokenness and that we have somehow uh, not lived the life God designed for us, right? And so there is a, an acknowledgement that happens there. And for Jews, even when you see this in Mary and Joseph, they would go to this temple and they would uh, sacrifice doves or lambs or whatever it is. And um, it's kind of this reminder that uh, uh, we understand this in human history, that the way that new territory is taken in our world is through bloodshed right? Read all of the history of uh, the American his our American history. You can go back to read Roman, Greek, you know, Egyptian. Go back as far as you want to go, and where you see new territory is taken every single time, blood was just shed, right? You can go read about the uh, Battle of Brandywine or other places, right? Blood was shed. The way that new territory is taken is something's conquered, 
and new and blood is shed. And so kind of this picture that, that Jews would think is, God, we want you to take new territory in our hearts, and we understand there's a sacrifice that had to be made, in other words, a bloodshed. And so literally lambs and doves and different things would be shed because, you know, we don't, want our, we don't want to sacrifice ourselves, right? That doesn't make any sense. And so we would take innocent innocent beings right innocent animals and offer them and go god we want you to we want to show you first and foremost that this that you're more valuable to us than these than these trinkets or these these animals right and we want this blood the shed to cover us so that you can take new territory in our life right so that was all kind of a band-aid a semi-permanent solution so week after week people go to the temple because they understood it only lasts so long it only covered one sin so every time it happened they go back and they would you know there'd be bloodshed there'd be sacrifice so that's where sin was covered and uh the other thing is and uh it was the center of all their faith and life and uh, village and worship. The temple is just a place that all those things happen. When you see Herod's approach to adding more to the temple in the first century, it's because it was a marketplace. When you see Jesus get really, really angry and turn over tables, right? Crack a whip. It's because the temple had become kind of the hub of the marketplace, right? And so people would congregate there. That was like the, the city center. So you got all those things. And so people would make their pilgrimages for uh, access to God. Now, what you get to see here, for those who believe there is a God and wanted to experience his presence, there's really only one way by which you could have access to God. This has been what Theophilus would have understood. This is what first century Jews would have understood. For many of us, we still believe this is the case. And the way by which you experience God's presence was through your performance, right? And many of us still think this. If we have more good days than bad days, God's happy with us. When you didn't look at that, see, see that, drink that, touch that, say that, whatever those days are, for some reason we think God likes us more, is happier with us, and will give us what we want, right? The, re the reason I know this is that think about times when you needed a new job. You needed um, your marriage to be saved. You needed uh, your kids to not be wayward. You needed some real clarity. What do you do in those times? You're on your best behavior, right? I mean, this is like where you buckle down and go, I'm not going to look at that. I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to do those things. So in our worldview still, we believe that when we perform well, God likes us more, right? And when we perform bad, God likes us less. In other words, when you do those things that you shouldn't do and you feel, you know, remorse, guilt, conviction about them, it's not like you run to Jesus and go, hey, I just want to hang out with you right? It's the opposite. We withdraw, right? Because we believe somewhere in our psyche, the way that we experience God's presence is based on our performance. Now, you know the problem with that. We don't always perform really well, right? That's why uh, Christianity or any worldview always leads us, I told you last week, to pride at first when you perform good, then despair when you perform bad, then eventually just indifference because you're just exhausted by the whole thing, right? Forget it, right? Because we still believe that somehow God will answer our prayers, give us what we want as long as we follow the policies and procedures and do the pilgrimages. Now, let me just tell you real clear, that is a lie from the pits of hell. There is nothing you could ever do, guys, to make God like you any more than he already does. There is nothing you could do to make God love you anymore. And on the flip side, there is actually nothing you can do, nothing, that you could do to make God love you any less. So you see, the minute we start participating in this performance, going, we have access to God because we perform well. We have access to God because we made a sacrifice. We have access to God because we read the Bible, studied the Bible, went to church. What we are saying is somehow we are responsible for our access to God. But you know what you're actually saying when you say that? That what Jesus did is not enough. If somehow your performance and my performance is what make God's ha makes God happy with us, sees us as his children, loves us, welcomes us back, is something we can do, then what we're literally saying to God is he is a sociopathic, psychopathic, crazy, crazy being, because why in the world would he murder his own son if that's not how we get access to God? So uh, for these first century Jews, they wouldn't have had access to Jesus. We've got to take him a lot more serious here, right? So their belief, rightfully so, that, that everything was just a band-aid solution. It was all about the policies, all about the procedures, all about the pilgrimages, so they could perform well, so that they can be purified, so finally they can have access to God again. So we see this with these devout Jews, Mary and Joseph, godly people. They come to the temple to do those things, and they want God's presence— and then, what's really interesting is, what Luke's about to do is he's going to make sure that we understand that it's not about performance. 
Okay, here they are. So I guess that's what we should do. We should go to the temple. We should make sacrifices. We should pray prayers. And so what Luke's about to do is he's going to introduce us to two characters. First one is Simeon. And guess what? If anybody is a great performer, it's Simeon. Or if anybody's a great performer, it's Anna. So he's going to show you these people and show you where they understand salvation and access to God comes from. And it's not based on their behavior. So watch what happens next. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. Boy, is he a good performer, right? He was righteous and devout. Righteous and devout. Waiting for the consolation of Israel, like the consoling, the comforting, right? And the Holy Spirit was upon him. So that word consolation there literally is this word, uh, it's the Greek word paraclete. Might not be familiar with it, but what's interesting when Jesus says that he is going back to heaven, John 14, 15, 16, 17, particularly John 15, after he's told him that he's going back to heaven, he's going to get murdered, come back to life, all those things, he says, but don't worry. When I leave, I'll give you another the same as me. I'll, and he'll give you, I'll give you a, what's called a comforter. And he uses this word, right? Uh, a paraclete. And that literally means the one who offers comfort and consolation and advocacy. So when Jesus is talking about this, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, but describes it this way. And so when Simeon is making this declaration, he's going, this man was righteous, right? But he is saying God is finally coming to comfort his people. He's coming to, to comfort them. And he says the Holy Spirit is upon him. So you got this guy, he is righteous and godly. And people are really impressed with his performance. And he's going, finally, finally. So he's righteous. He's devout. Holy Spirit's upon him. This is before anybody really knew much about the Holy Spirit. This is before the book of Acts. This is before Jesus' death and resurrection. And yet, God's Spirit is still moving on this guy. He's waiting for consolation. And here's what it says next. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So Luke is going, hey, there's this guy. He's been at the temple. People are really, really impressed with his uh, performance. And yet he is saying, I've finally been waiting for the consolation for God's comfort. And the other word I would use here uh, that I think would be helpful is not just comfort, but peace. Right? And if we were to just be candid here, it's really absent in our world now. Right? Maybe it's absent in your home. Definitely absent in our world really absent in our Facebook posts, right? There's, there's all of these things, and there's just this longing for there to just be peace, but many of us have resigned to the fact that peace is just not available to us or available to our country, right? There's just this absence of this guy, Simeon. He is a perfect performer, and yet there's some things he's longing for. He's longing for some comfort and consolation. He's longing for some peace, and you would think, since he's better than we are, he would have those things, because he's a good performer. But he doesn't because God had promised him that one day he would experience those things, comfort and peace. But the way that he was going to experience those was from this little baby boy, Jesus the Christ, the, the promised one. And here's what it says in verse 27. And he came into the Spirit, uh, came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of law. So now all of a sudden, Mary and Joseph, they've come into the temple. They're bringing Jesus for the consecration to set him apart. And all of a sudden, Simeon is now intersecting at the right time, seeing them. And it says this, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, so he takes his baby, holds it up, you know, it's like uh, uh, Simba, right? You got it right. And so he's holding this, this baby in this moment. And he took him up in the arms and blessed God. That's the word eulogy again. So he's going to speak good news of Jesus, good news of God. Happy statement over this child. And that's what it says. Lord, that means boss, right? Now you're letting your servant depart in what? You see it? Peace, according to your word. So finally, it's available. Now, get this. It's not available because the nation's fixed. It's not available because the temple's perfect. It's not available for any of those things. He's literally holding this baby, and he's saying, I can depart in peace because of this month-old child, the six-week-old baby. For my eyes have seen salvation. This is interesting because he's holding up literally the name salvation, Yeshua, and going, I can depart in peace because I've seen your salvation. Now, remember, the way by which Jews thought and many religions think that you earn your salvation is by your performance. Simeon is a good guy. 
He is a good performer. But in this moment, what you see him saying is, it is not about me. It's not about what I can do. Everything, all the presence, all the purification, all the peace, all the comfort, all of it's found in this baby. We got to take this baby a lot more serious, right? So he says, I can depart in peace because, uh, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, right? So he does this preparation. He goes, God has done it. And he is literally saying, as this devout Jew, he's saying, and this is available to all people. Not the religious, not the ones who perform well. It's available to all people. So uh, that you prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So he's going, this is the solution for peace. This is the solution for everything we've been looking for. And it's for the pagans. It's for the Gentiles. It's for the Jews. And so this child, this baby, is the solution for all the problems. Right? Here we are 2,000 years later. And just to be clear, the only solution there is for the mess of our world, it is not more policies. It's not a new president or to keep the same president. It's not new legislation. The only solution that we have, guys, is Jesus, right? And we think it, but no, no, I'm going, we can't just think it. We can't just kind of wonder if that's the case. I'm going, no, no, no. Read throughout human history. There's always been flawed and brokenness, and the only solution to that is Jesus. And guess how most people usually get to Jesus? One of two places. Humility or humiliation, right? And by humiliation, I mean we've tried all the other things, tried to perform well, tried to show off, all those kind of things, and finally we come to the conclusion that we're not good enough to fix our marriage, fix our bodies, fix our families, fix our, fix our workplace, or fix our country, right? So the solution is either finally we exhaust all other options, or we get so humiliated that we are, we're, we're outcast, ostracized, and finally we go, God, would, if you're real, would you? God, if you actually did this, would you, right? There's just, just this moment where finally we go, we have no other option, right? And so it's really complicated and neat about our country is we've exhausted a lot of options, right? And so perhaps this is the moment we kind of finally turn around and go, okay, peace and consolation only comes, only comes from Jesus. So for the Gentiles and for the people of Israel and his father and his mother, that's Jesus' parents, Mary and Martha, marveled at what was said about him. You got to see Mary and Joseph. These are 13-year-old kids. Like, they wouldn't even be here for the sermon. They'd be in the middle school room, right? I mean, these—so this guy is speaking these things, and they know it, and they kind of know it, but these are children. And they're marveled that you're going, this is what he's going to do? Like, he is the solution to all the problems, right? And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed— for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and the sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And so that's what's going. He's going. Hey, this Jesus is going to show up. And when Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we find later in the scriptures in the New Testament, what he, that word "ashamed" could literally be translated "offended." Because he's going, hey, this is going to be offensive. When I just told you there is no other solution than Jesus, many of you are like, yeah, that's kind of silly. Really, this baby, this God from 2,000 years ago, he's going to fix your problems? That just sounds lazy to me. Like, why don't you take ownership for your own behavior? Oh, I'm, I've tried. And when I take ownership of my own behavior, guess what typically happens? Things get worse for me, right? And so literally what is exposed when we take Jesus really serious is some of our friends and family think we're nutcases. Right? And so he's going to Mary, hey, what's going to happen is there's going to be a lot of people who are going to get this, and they're going to be so excited, but there's going to be people that are going to trash your son to the point of death, Mary. So you need to prepare. Like, this is a, this is a line that's get drawn, those who take Jesus seriously and those who don't. And so he, he's making this declaration to them, and now all of a sudden we're going to see another person. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of uh, Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. So probably got, uh, maybe got married at 13. She had seven years with him. So that's age 20. She loses her husband. And so here we have this lady. What's really interesting here, I want you to make sure you see it more for just understanding Luke's gospel, not really for the application of today. You see where it gives you a name, Phanuel, gives you a tribe, Asher. This is a footnote. Right? So this was written in the first century. He's writing this to Theophilus. You know what that means? Theophilus and others could have gone and traced that family tree. They could have found 
Fanuel. They could have seen him in the history books. Whatever. So what Luke's doing here is going, hey, I want you to know these are real people. I talk to them. I interact with them. This is who she is. This is where she comes from. And so he introduces her to, uh, to the, the audience, to us. And here's what it says next. And then as a widow until she was 84. So either she's 84 or she was 20 and then 84. So she's either 84 or 104. This is an old lady, right? And she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. So this is a lady who was really good at the policies, procedures, and pilgrimages. She was so good at the pilgrimages that she did it every day. Like, it literally says she never left this place because that's where God's presence was. And you want to give someone who does well in performance, this is a poor lady who lost her husband and stayed, de- stayed devoted to God for more than eight decades. Right? I mean, this is, so Luke is kind of highlighting, here's Simeon, great godly person, much better than any of us. Oh yeah, that's a man. But let me also show you a woman who's a great godly person, much better than us, much better performer. Eight decades, and all of a sudden she's there in this moment. Let's see how she responds. And it says this. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. See this? So she sees this child, and she starts to worship him. She is celebrating, right? Because she sees this, and she says the redemption of Israel. That word redemption uh, would have been kind of weird for Luke to use at that point. We like the word now because it wasn't a spiritual term. We've made it spiritual, but it was a very common marketplace term. In fact, what was used the most was with slaves, right? When you were to buy a slave back to you, when you were to get someone back and you were to pay a price for ownership of something. That literally is what redemption means. So literally what she's saying in her worship, her performance, Jesus shows up and she goes, this is the one who buys us back to our freedom. This is the one. So she's understanding that it's not a performance that gets her presence to God. It's not a performance that purifies her and makes her right. It only is one person, Jesus, who redeems her, buys her back, and buys back everyone. Not just her, but all people, right? And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. So that's it. Two different people show up. First, Simeon declares it. Then Anna declares it. That all the hope of all the world is actually just found in this person, Jesus. Right? So it's not about our performance. It's not about how good we are. In fact, what you'll learn as you become more like Christ, as you start walking with him, it's not like you feel like you're a better human the closer you get to him. It's not like you're like, ah, oh, I've arrived, right? On many days, you feel more dirty and more broken, right? Because you have this big battle in us. You got humanity, all of your thoughts, all your stuff for all your life. And know God's divinity inside there. And it kind of just feels off and anxious, right? And, and my, my, my experience, the closer I get to Jesus, the more aware I am of how broken I am. Right? When you have this deep, dark contrast between Jesus and myself. Like, I'm walking closer to the Lord now than I ever have, and yet I'm so aware of how far away I am. So you got Anna, you got Simeon. They love God, but they are so aware that their performance would never be enough. And some of that is us just coming to that place of humility where we acknowledge we're not as good as we think we are, or as good as we pretend to be, right? And that's what it says. They did that, and finally they get to go home. So they make the 100-mile journey back to Nazareth and yet you see it says and they performed everything this is still policies and procedures and pilgrimages there's just this pattern of performance like so much about our worldview is about performance about earning our own identity right if it's to be it's up to me so you see that happen and we get one more verse and we'll get to kind of really unpack this next week and this is what it says and the child grew and became strong filled with wisdom and the favor of God was upon him so for the longest time, people thought that it was their performance. And what they're about to see is going, hey, hey, you see him as a baby in this moment. But what Luke is about to tell us is, no, he grew up. And now it is about a performance. It's just not about ours. It's about Jesus's. So Jesus did perform well, which means that it's not our blood or sacrifice from us that has to happen. It's the one who performed perfectly. Jesus's blood covers us, right? It's not that we have to go to some building or some pilgrimage to be a temple. It literally tells us Jesus is that temple, and he dwells in us, right? So God performs well. So it is about a performance, just not about our performance. So Jesus is the blood that covers us. He is the temple. We don't need to go bring our baby to a priest, have him consecrated, right? We don't need to go to a priest to ask for our forgiveness of sins. Why? 
because Jesus is our priest, and we have direct access to him, right? And then also, we don't need to go make sacrifices. We don't have to go slaughter lambs. Why? Because Jesus' performance, he said he was the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the uh, world. And so what's going to happen over the next several weeks, if not months, we're going to really, really kind of hone in on what Jesus does. In fact, you'll see in a few weeks, we'll start promoting a, a new sermon series called Jesus for President. Right in the middle of all this complicated stuff, and it'll start the first week in October, but we're still just charting through, charting through the Gospels, but we're going to see that Jesus' performance brings in a new king and a new kingdom amidst all this other stuff. And so we're going to get to work through this, but let me just kind of skip ahead and kind of help you understand this. And so Jesus performs perfectly, right? And at, towards the end of his life, the Gospel of John captures it. Jesus is sitting with his disciples, and there's probably not a passage I refer to more. It's called Jesus' Last Discourse. This is when Jesus does the Last Supper, and he tells them some things. In John chapter 13, he tells them that he's leaving them, that he's finished. He's done the right performance, and it's time for him to go. And then he tells them in John chapter 14 that he's going to prepare a place for us, that where he is, we may be also. Because he says, in my Father's house are many rooms. So he's talking about this thing, and he goes, and you know how to get there. They go, we don't know how to get there. And he says, yes, you do. Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but through me. So he goes, no, no, you can get there. You can have the life and purpose now because I am the way you get that, right? And then John chapter 15 tells us, uh, 14 and 15, he tells us that apart from him, our performance means nothing. Apart from him, we can do nothing. That's why he tells us just to rest and remain in him and his performance. And then he tells them that this is going to really complicate things for them, right? That same prophecy that Anna, Anna says is going, a lot of people are going to hate this, not believe it, be angry about it, right? All those kind of things. And he's going, there's literally going to be a line, the people who really take Jesus seriously and apply him to every part of our lives and those who don't. And so then he tells them that there's going to be a lot of people who are going to hate this. And they're going to make fun of it. And he's going to tell them that there's going to be all sorts of mess in this world. And then he tells them at the very end of this why he does that. I want to read to you one verse. This is John chapter 16, verse 33. So he's talking about his performance. And he's telling us why he's giving us this information. This is what he says. I've said all these things to you. Last discourse, right? That you, that in me, you may have peace. You can have peace. Not later. He's literally telling him in the middle of a mess. So hear that, guys. Like, in him, right now, right now, you got to take this seriously. You can have peace. Why? Here's why. Because in this world, you'll have tribula tribulation. Anybody disagree with that? In this world, it'll be hard. But you can have peace in the middle of it. And some of us are going, well, wait, do we really believe that? And he goes, you can have peace in the middle of this. And he tells us how we can have peace. Watch this. In this world, in the world, you have tribulation. But take heart. It literally means be courageous right? Take this seriously. I have overcame or overcome the world. You see that? It doesn't say I will overcome the world. This is before he dies. This is before he proved that he's God by coming back to life. In that moment, he's going, I have overcome the world. I have performed correctly. I have performed perfectly, which means in whatever's going on in this world, you can have courage and peace because of the work I did, personal work of Jesus. Now, interesting that word overcome is actually the greek word nike or nike now many of you have opinions about nike right now right their advertisements the thing they're saying or whatever it is and we all land on different spectrums so not I'm just saying we all have opinions there's something about now nike that invokes something in us some sports apparel right but now the good news is, every time you see this sports apparel that evokes some kind of emotion in you, you can go, oh, wait, wait, wait. Now I have something new to replace that emotion with. Every time you see that, that is a reminder of the Greek. Now, Phil Knight names it after the Greek goddess of victory. But you know where the Greek goddess of victory gets their, her understanding? From Nike, which means overcomer or victorious. So literally what Jesus is saying is, guys, you've got to hear this. You gotta hear this. They would understand it from the Olympic Games, all those kind of things. You gotta understand this. Right? You will have trouble. So every time you have trouble, don't go, that doesn't mean there's not a God. Jesus is going, I've already prepared you for this. You will have trouble. But you can have peace. You can have peace right now. You literally can have peace. Why? Because we put all of our hope and all of our stock in Jesus now. I have overcome the world. Not, I will overcome. Not that one day in the future. He's literally saying today he is already victorious in this life. He's already done. And he's inviting us to hitch ourselves to that and go, no, no, Jesus is the one who performs. Which means I don't have to worry about the policies, procedures, and pilgrimages. Right? I can have peace right now. Right now you can have it. 
And to be honest with you, I'm not sure we believe that. And so what I want to remind you, as we're about to sing a song, is that two people, everything about their life changed in a moment because they interacted with the living Savior of the world. Right? And they took this Savior and applied it to their personal circumstances in that moment. And so I love that we're going to do right here is we're literally going to sing a song, and if you listen to you know, contemporary Christian music, you'll, you'll recognize it, right? It's about what Jesus does. He does all the work, and, he, and it's this idea of being a chain breaker, right? There's something in this that Jesus does all the work, and we get all the benefits. And so what I want you to contextualize here is deal with whatever that tribulation in your life is. Is it financial? Is it you know, relational? Is it emotional? Is it, you know— uh, uh, familial, right? I don't, whatever that is, and what, what, what's happening in this moment is Jesus going, hey, you will have tribulation, but you can have peace and hope if you'll take me more serious. Right? And it seems so counterintuitive to put all of our hope and all of our stock into this person that maybe you thought was make-believe. But he did live. And he did make these claims. And then he was murdered on a Roman cross for them. That's all true. History captures it. And then he was put into a tomb. And then three days later, that tomb is empty. And this revolution starts in the middle of all this, where hundreds and thousands and millions of people have actually died for this belief. And why did they do it? Because they believed this, and they experienced it, right? And so, it might sound far-fetched, but what other option do you got? Where else do you find in your hope and your peace? Well, the absence of those things. And so I just would say, maybe today we double down on taking Jesus serious. Or maybe for the first time you just say to him, Jesus, I, I want to believe in what you did. And I, would, I want you to come and dwell with me. The Bible says this, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord is saved. Here's what that means. Like right this second today, you can declare that Jesus is Lord of your life. And you get all the benefits and privileges of being a child of God at that moment. So literally, in these moments, you can just say, God, I want you to be Lord of my life. Jesus, I believe you're real. And in that moment, you might not experience it yet, but in that moment, Jesus is ushering in his peace. He's covering you by his performance, and he's inviting you into a life that starts now and never ends. And the way he does that is he breaks all the chains and gives us all the freedom that he does all the work. And so maybe for a moment, could we sing this and declare it like we believe it to be true? And so would you join me in seeing this? Would you stand with me?
normally used to seeing Josh come back up here, but he went back outside to be with the folks out there. So I hope that you believe that today. If you have pain, if you feel lost, um, this is a really crazy time, but we have a way. His name is Jesus, and we're just so excited to share that with you. So we want to remind you, if you're in the sanctuary, we're going to be dismissing you from back to front. If you can just wait, um, they will dismiss you. If you have kids either outside or from inside, they're going to dismiss the same place we have been, which is around towards um, the playground area. You can pick your kids up there. Um, stay tuned to our social media pages and our newsletter coming out this Friday, um, and we just hope that you have a great week. We'll see you soon.